0: Give it up for the band. These guys work so hard and they're awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you. Well, as most of you know, um, we are in the middle of a marriage uh, of a sermon series right now on marriage and relationships. And to be honest, I was not expecting to give any of these sermons. Um, So when Bob asked me a couple weeks ago to do uh, the teaching for this week, I was really excited but also really nervous. And Nervous because of the fact I've only been married for nine months. And some of you guys have been married for 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. So I'm not going to stand up here today and act like I have marriage figured out or that I'm amazing at relationships or anything like that. I have no problem standing up here and confessing my sin and saying that I struggle deeply with pride and selfishness. And you can um, talk to my wife. She can testify about how my selfishness, Um, affects our marriage in deep ways. Um, However, I think uh, tonight's discussion is going to be eye-opening for a lot of you, and I just hope and pray that you'll open your hearts uh, to what it is that God wants to teach you tonight, because we're going to discuss um, how the Holy Spirit gives us the power for marriage. We're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and then I'm going to be using a, um, a great deal of information uh, from chapter two of Tim Keller's book, um, The Meaning of Marriage. But before uh, we get into the power for marriage, I want us to watch a fun video that reminds us of what it typically is uh, that causes all of our relational issues, and it's usually selfishness. Um, but a little background would be helpful uh, before we watch this video. In this scene, um, Tim the Toolman Taylor has recently purchased um, season tickets uh, to all the Detroit Pistons games. He bought um, two tickets each for 40 games, and he spent $4,000, and he didn't talk it over with his wife. Needless to say, his wife, Jill, was not happy about the situation, but she did some thinking, and she came up with a compromise um, for a way for uh, for both of them to be happy. So let's see how uh, this story plays out. Just never mind we need to talk. Boys? We know, we know. (laughs) Okay, I was thinking about this thing with the tickets and maybe I was a little unfair. Really? I know how important they are to you, so I think I've come up with a really good compromise. How about you keep the tickets for five games and you sell off the rest. Five out of four? You call that a compromise? That's $500. I think that's fair. Maybe you don't understand the concept here, honey. These are season tickets, not whenever your wife wants you to go tickets. So what are you saying? You're not willing to budge at all? If I give up my season tickets because of my wife, other wives are gonna pick up on this. Pretty soon, wives everywhere are going, you know, the tool man gave up his season tickets. You should too. (laughs) Attendance starts dropping to stadiums. Next thing we know, it's into professional sports worldwide. (laughs) You were just completely unwilling to compromise. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know the meaning of the word compromise. You don't know the meaning to a lot of words. <laughs> don't you forget it. All right, Now, although that is a very extreme and ridiculous example, I get that. We can see how Tim's selfishness and our own selfishness can cause a lot of problems in our relationships. Um, We often make decisions with our best interest in mind. Um, We do things that will make us more successful, um, even at the expense of others. We often take advantage of others. We use people to get what we want. We put the pressure on someone else to complete us, and to satisfy us, which no human can do. And the list can go on and on and on. So, how in the world, this is the question, how can we live as selfless people who humble ourselves to serve our spouses and to serve those in our lives? Tim Keller put it like this in his book. He said, The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to the heart weakens the self-centeredness in the soul It is impossible for us to make major headway against self-centeredness and move into a stance of service without some kind of supernatural help. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and we'll get into this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 15 through 33, a decent section. If you're using a pew Bible, it should be page 813. Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 15, Paul says this, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now Tonight, we're going to be focusing primarily on verse 21. If you want to Turn your eyes to that one. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul begins his well-known section on marriage with this significant verse. And most English translations actually reveal this verse as a separate sentence. But that's actually really misleading from the original Greek text. Because in Greek, this um, verse is actually connected to the previous section in which Paul is giving lots of traits of a person who is being filled with the Spirit. And uh, Keller had this to say um, about verse 21, if you want to show that slide. So said, The last mark of spiritfulness is in this last clause. It is the loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve others. From this Spirit-empowered submission of verse 21, Paul moves to the duties of husbands and wives. Now, we Americans, I said this this morning, we do not like the word submit. Um, It completely rubs us wrong. It is contrary to everything we have been taught and just ingrained in who we are in our culture and society. And I'm going to give some popular sayings that I know all of you have heard, and maybe some of you have even said them yourself. Some stuff like this, nobody can tell me what to do. It's my life, and I'll do what I want. And if you don't like it, you can leave. How about this one? It's a dog-eat-dog world. I've got to look out for number one. Or, it's my way or the highway. So when Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, this is really interesting. He already has the assumption that both parties within the marriage are living in this manner. That both people are being filled with the Spirit. Because if we're going to have a marriage, as God intended it to be, we need His Spirit to help us selflessly serve others. We cannot do it on our own. We are really not that awesome, (laughs) our natural self. We're not that kind and loving. We need the help of the Spirit. And uh, there might be some of us here tonight who are a little unclear on maybe who the Holy Spirit is and what His role is. I just want to kind of touch base on that briefly. Um, The Christian doctrine of the Trinity uh, attests to the belief that there's only one God who has and always will exist in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in one of my seminary classes, I did an end-depth study on this, and a theologian named Millard Erickson um, said something that really kind of connected with me, and he said this. He said, the Holy Spirit is the point at which the Trinity becomes personal to the believer. The Holy Spirit is active within the lives of believers. He is resident within us. The Spirit is able to affect one intensely because dwelling within, he can get to the very center of one's thinking and emotions and lead one into all truth, as Jesus promised. And there's no better person for us to turn to to learn about the Spirit than Jesus himself. So we're going to show another slide here Of some things that Jesus had to say in the book of John about the Spirit. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom their Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. When the advocate comes, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. And finally, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. And three different times Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. He said that the Spirit will be in us and that he will teach us all the truths about Jesus. He said that the Spirit will guide us into the truth and that he will testify about Jesus. And that is the amazing Spirit of God that indwells every believer. That is incredible. So right after discussing um, um, the traits of a Spirit-filled life, uh, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to marriage. And this is really important because this shows the extremely tight and strong connection between marriage and a life being filled with the Spirit. Because... If we aren't living in line with the Spirit, we're not going to find the strength to daily serve our spouse. You might be able to do it on your own strength for a while, but eventually your tank, your emotional and spiritual tank, it's going to run dry. Um, So a question I have, I know some people might find themselves in this situation. What if you're here tonight and you, um, you yourself or someone you know is in a marriage where only one only one party is living in this way only one party is willing to follow Christ and be filled with the spirit what if one spouse is completely completely unaware of their need for God or worse what if the other spouse is completely unwilling to humble themselves and follow Christ and serve the other is there any hope that things could change and on this subject um, tim keller had this to say is really good he says it may be that one of you decides to operate on the basis of verse 21 and one of you does not in this case let's say you are the only one who decides my selfishness is the thing that I'm going to work on what will happen usually there's not much immediate response from the other side but often over time your attitude and behavior will begin to soften your partner He or she can see the pains you are taking. And it will be easier for your spouse to admit his or her faults because you are no longer always talking about them yourself. So if both of you decide to work on your selfishness and minister to the other, the prospects for your marriage are great. But even if only one of you does it, your prospects are still good. The Christian principle that needs to be at work is spirit-generated selflessness. Not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself but thinking of yourself less. And that one's worth writing down. Not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And it's important to discuss another aspect of relationships and one that I am guilty of doing a poor job in. And that is the prayer aspect of relationships. So take a minute and think about someone in your life that you deeply love. It could be your wife or your husband fiance, your brother or sister, your mom or dad, your son or daughter. Now consider how much your heart and their heart could be transformed if you committed to consistently praying for them. And I'm not talking about a prayer that sounds like this. Jesus, please help my wife to see how horrible of a person she is. She is such an idiot, and help her to realize that. Help my husband just to see how wise I am and how much he can learn from me. Just help that just, be, just become a reality in his life. I know some of us have prayed that way before and that's ridiculous. That's not the type of praying I'm talking about. But imagine, seriously, if your prayer sounds something like this. Lord, please humble me today to better serve my spouse. Help him to become aware of your great love. Please soften his heart so that he'll let your love penetrate every area of his being. Give him favor in his work today. Bless him and help me to be a blessing to him. If you're making time to pray prayers like that for someone daily, it's going to become increasingly difficult to stay bitter and resentful and selfish towards them. It's hard to continue being selfish towards someone that you're constantly praying for, for their heart to be open to receiving God's love. And while you may pray for others with the hope that they're going to change, what often happens is that your heart changes. Cuz prayer can change your heart just as much as it changes that might change the heart of the person you're praying for. In Luke 11:13, Jesus said that the Father desires to give more of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Now imagine what could happen. This is interesting. If you took time daily And you humbled yourself and asked God to fill you with His Spirit every day. What could happen? Because we know a life filled with the Spirit will produce fruit. Amazing attributes like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because it's not easy to be patient with others all the time. It's not easy to show self-control all the time. It's hard to be gentle with others often. It's not easy to love others who have hurt you, maybe betrayed you. But it's through the Spirit that we receive power to live in that way. Prayer is such a powerful and yet underutilized resource to believers. And amazing things can happen in our hearts and in our relationships when we take the time to humble ourselves and pray blessings over others. When we ask God to help us give up our pride and self-will to serve another. When we admit that we're sinners and need forgiveness. And it may not happen as quickly or as exactly as you would want. But God wants to heal you. Every one of you. He wants to heal you and your relationships. And he wants to restore them to the way they were intended to be. Let's take our attention back now to chapter 5 verse 21 again. Ephesians 5.21 says this again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I want us just to focus on the last half of that verse. Out of reverence for Christ. Um, The word reverence here actually doesn't best convey what Paul was saying in the original Greek language. What Paul is literally saying here is that we should submit to one another out of the fear of. Of Christ, And some English translations say this, the NIV is not one of them. Submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. Now when you hear that, an immediate issue arises with most of us because we have a completely different idea and definition of the type of fear that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about a fear that makes us scared of God or afraid to approach Him. Without going into detail, I'll just summarize Scripture's definition of fear as this. Being overwhelmed and in awe of God's greatness and unending love. Being overwhelmed and in awe of God's greatness and his unending love. Take a minute to think about your life and think about what it is that drives you the most. What makes you get up out of bed each morning? Something does. What makes you get up out of bed each morning? Is it your desire to excel in your career so that you can make more money? Are you trying to prove yourself or your self-worth to another person? Are you trying to achieve some dream that maybe you've been working for the past several years? If you allow any of those pursuits to outweigh the predominant influence of God's incredible love for you, it will be impossible for you to serve others without selfish motives. We must allow our spiritual and emotional tanks to be filled by Christ's love so that we can humbly put the needs of others before our own. I want to show another slide here. Uh, Summarizing verse 21, Keller had this to say. He said, In the end, being filled with the Spirit and the fear of the Lord are basically the same thing. They both refer to an inner spiritual experience and reality, but each phrase brings out different aspects. They both take people out of themselves. Paul says the spirit-created unselfishness is crucial if we are going to have the marriages we should have. Amazed joy at the sacrifice and love of Christ is the motivation for all New Testament calls to defer, love, and serve. So how in the world do we make that a reality? How do we become filled with the spirit every day and grow in our fear of Christ, being overwhelmed by his goodness and love. What does that look like daily for me? What's that look like for you? I want to kind of wrap up tonight by sharing a story I think could maybe shine some light on this question. Um, In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, um, uh, Keller shares a story about a man who was really familiar with his preaching. This guy listened to his sermons a lot. And one day, he made an observation, and he walked up to Keller, and he said this. He said, when you are well prepared for your sermon, you cite a great variety of sources. But when you're not well prepared, you just quote C.S. Lewis. And knowing the man was right, he did not disagree. And the reason is because outside of the Bible, no author has shaped the way that Tim Keller thinks like C.S. Lewis has. He's read every book that Lewis ever wrote numerous times. He's read several biographies on his life. He's read tons of his personal letters. Um, his writings answered a lot of his questions in the um, early years of his um, uh, becoming a believer. He's able to recite numerous passages of, of Lewis's writings just by memory. because It's just ingrained in him. When you immerse yourself into the life and teachings of an individual, something incredible happens. As you memorize their writings, you start to understand how their mind works. You become so familiar with their words and character and their way of thinking that in some ways you find yourself acting and saying things that they would have said if they were put in the same situation. Now consider what would happen if you immersed yourself into the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as found in the New Testament. He's definitely worthy of more of our attention than C.S. Lewis or any other Bible scholar. What if we so intensely and consistently studied the way that Jesus interacted with people? Wouldn't we in time start responding to life in a manner more in line with how he responded and he interacted with others? What if we so closely examined the things that Jesus seemed to be passionate about? How would that change the things that we focus so much of our time and energy towards? How would that change them? Certainly a change in in our way of thinking and in the attitude of our heart is not going to happen overnight. Trust me, I get that. It's going to take a long time, a lot of discipline and reflection and prayer Interactions with other Christians and worship within a community. But Think about what would happen if you started doing that consistently. Here's what would happen. You would start to see yourself as God sees you. You would start to see others as God sees them. You would start to view your life in this world through the same lens that God looks through. And you would become filled with the Spirit by letting His Word penetrate you to the very core of your being. Because it's the Spirit that gives us the strength to serve others out of humility. He gives us the strength to lovingly give and receive criticism without becoming bitter. And He gives us the strength to look at our relationships as a way to share the love that we've received from such an intimate and personal God. And like Bob has said many times, we are not ending these sermons um, by giving you guys 12 easy steps to marital success or you know follow these 15 steps and all your relationships will thrive. We're really not giving you anything like that. We're just trying to teach foundational truths that are rooted in Scripture um, that can help us live in a way more in line with how we're called to live. And my hope is that something tonight that I said stuck out to you And I hope that you'll do something about it. Whether it's becoming more aware of your selfishness. If you don't think you're selfish, you are blind. I didn't even say this this morning. If if, if you really do not think you're selfish, you're blind. That's something you really need to pray and talk to some people about to become self-aware. Maybe it's learning what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Or believing that there's hope even if you're the only spouse willing to follow Christ. Or maybe it's having a better grasp on the significance of prayer within relationships. And just to be encouraged, just know that you're not in this alone. I know that talking about marriage and relationships, um, it's tough. It can be painful. And if you're going, if you're going to take an honest look at yourself and really be willing to change, there's going to be some painful times during this season, but we shouldn't become despair because there's hope on the other side. And that oftentimes awkward and painful process, God's just pruning you and just molding you to be more like him. Um, You have a lot of other brothers and sisters here in this church who are on this journey with you. Don't process all of this information alone. Don't process these sermons by yourself. Talk them over with your spouse if they're willing and meet with other brothers and sisters who will encourage you and challenge you, not just always tell you what you want to hear, but actually challenge you. And comfort you. And I'll end with this. 1 John 4.19 says that we love. Because he first loved us. We love. Because he first loved us. And our love for each other should flow. Out of the incredible love that we've received from him. Let's pray together. God I pray that we would be people who learn how to be filled with your spirit. I pray that we would deal first with our own selfishness before we point the finger at others. Help us to realize how blessed we are to be part of such an incredible church body filled with people who are willing to admit their faults and their shortcomings. Help us to better understand your great love for us and help our love for each other to flow out of the love that we've received from you. Thank you for the hearts that you're changing and molding right now and just over the last month as we've been diving deep into this sermon series. God, help us to be people who are completely in love with you. Let your spirit guide us in the way that we should live and interact with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.